Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you know what time it is. It's my voice, Larry Charles, the half-host of Game Dev Unchained, the podcast, and of course, the other sexy voice coming through your earphones right now, Mr. Brandon Fan. Hey, welcome everyone to this week's episode. Please welcome our special guest, E. McNeil. How are you doing? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Of course, man. Glad to have you. Now, uh, would you like us to professionally address you as E. McNeil, or should we say Edward McNeil? What e. McNeil's about? fine. All right. Yeah. That my name is actually Edward is a trade secret. Oh, all right. Well, let's. Uh, you can bleep that out. <laughs> <laughs> no, right, I'm kidding. It's fine. Okay. Uh, no, I'm, I'm dead serious. Like we can redo the intro if that helps. No, no, no. I'm fine. Yeah, don't oh, worry about it. Okay, got. It. But yeah, I go by E uh, personally and professionally. All right, sweet. That like I was nervous over here. I was like, oh shit! Like I was reading the article. And no everything. worries. <laughs> all right. Cool. Yeah, it's, it's easy to spell that way. Yeah. So sweet. So. Obviously, look, Brandon and I do a lot of article reading as we're working. I don't know if that's a good thing for our employers or not, but we we (laughs) like to keep our fingers on the pulse. And we came across one that had this fantastic headline where it says a game that shouldn't have been like, uh, I think it was gross as like $800,000 on the iTunes store or the app store. (laughs) uh, Do you remember this specific title, Brandon? Uh, I can pull it up. It was how a tiny game that should have failed grossed $800,000. You can imagine somebody scrolling through Kotaku would see that, or somebody scrolling through Polygon would be like, oh, we should probably read this. <laughs> can, you, can you take us back through that experience, and let's start with the beginning, where you say, hey, this is my first game, I just want to put it out there, guys, let me know what you think, and then all of a sudden, five years later, it's like, wow, I've amassed like $800,000, uh, or the project right. has amassed that much. You know, that's, that's quite a success for your first hit. It was. It, it was um, a really good start. But yeah, you know, that was not the first game that I, you know, put out mm. and kind of made and, you know, looked for feedback. You know, the, the story can go back as far as you want to go back. But I was, I've, I was making games a good five years before I made Aurelux, okay. um, which is the game in question. And those were just like really tiny student projects, things that I'd make in a week that looked terrible. And I never, you know... I never thought they were going to be good. Mm. It was just cool because I made them, you know, yeah, yeah. and I would just share them with friends. And then I kind of graduated to making these longer prototypes that would take me a month or a few months, and I shared those online. And, you know, I put them out on Reddit or things like that. Yeah. And at the time, um, you know, indie was not such a big thing, and Reddit was a lot smaller and, you know, kind of a nicer community. Yeah. And <laughs> I actually got some feedback and players, and that was kind of the first time, you know, that these games were getting played outside of my circle of family and friends. Okay. And so then, you know, it was kind of this like gradual, uh, you know, slope up in terms of like quality and project length until I hit Aurelux, which was the first one where I said, you know, I was just going to do this as another side project and release it for free, but I could, you know, add a bunch more content to it, call it an indie game, put Mm -hmm. it up on a website and just see what happens. Yeah. Um, so that's what I did. And uh, 
another big part of that was I had this kind of gimmick at launch of saying I was going to give the game away for free for 24 hours mm-hmm. uh, as a thanks to the community who had helped me, you know, with all this feedback and attention before. And that got it, you know, a lot more attention for this new project. Gotcha. And, you know, that's kind of the, the spark that set everything else in motion. That's a, that's actually a really smart move, man, to, you know, one, to pay homage to the people who like actually helped contribute, you know, give them a gift that shows appreciation. But two, it's still just a, a clever marketing move because now you have your product in more people's hands. And if people like it, that's more people talking about it. Yeah. yeah. And, and I was try, kind of trying to find something like that where, you know, yes, you absolutely or I absolutely needed some, you know, something special to get attention for the game because, it's impossible. Otherwise, you just fade into this abyss of obscurity yeah. by default. Um, but also, you know, something that I could feel good about and, you know, you know, could do honestly. Mm. Because I, I really did appreciate the help that I'd gotten before, and I really was sort of enthusiastic to give it away as well. Um, you know, it was really, at that time, because the game was a nothing, it was no skin off my back. Mm. All right. Were you still in school while you were doing this, or was it after college when you released it and did the I was still in challenge? school at the time. Yeah, so, I, I, did, I like developed it over my junior year, and it was like you know midway through my senior year when I um, actually released it. And yeah. so um, after it kind of got that big burst of attention at the beginning, I was you know that actually I, I kind of had to figure out how I was going to manage that alongside trying to graduate. You're right. Um, I mean, like, the first thing is the big walk down the hallway, right? <laughs> I mean, because after 24 hours, you were able to see the results pretty immediately. I mean, I imagine you going to school with at least more, uh, at least, uh, more security with, with where you want to go and what you want to do afterwards, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, even with that big moment of success of like, oh, the, you know, this game is on the top of Reddit, um, it, it made like a couple hundred dollars after mm-hmm. that. You know, the, the game was not like a business success by any means at that point. Mm-hmm. So it was still kind of like this neato thing that happened. And, you know, I didn't realize how important it was at the time that it had attracted interest from companies that wanted to port the game to mobile. Because mm-hmm. that's really where the momentum came later on. But at the time, you know, I was just sort of like not really sure how much more effort to put into it. Mm-hmm. And, and kind House. of the, the way, go. No, go ahead. Finish your. Well, I, I was going to say like the way that I, um, what one reason why I decided to proceed the way I did, which was you know finding a company that agreed kind of to handle the mobile port mostly on its own, was because I just didn't have the time to like go full speed into another sequel or something like that, mm-hmm. which was, was another kind of um, alternative that we were bouncing around at the time. Right, and so after this moment. You got uh, a, a huge surge on Reddit, mm-hmm. uh, and this is probably how the the mobile, the, at least the port guys, got in touch with you, right? Right. And so, how long after was that whole blow up, and then to finally someone contacting you is like, "Hey, we think this is something that can be amazing, mm-hmm. and we want to help you with it." Like, how long was that? Uh, it was the day of. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. Well, and, and it was it was also it was not just them. Um there there were several different groups or people that got in contact, ranging from just, you know, small indie devs working solo or hobbyists who were saying, "Hey, you know, I I'd, I'd like to help out, you know, let me know if you need anything," to, you know, larger companies that were interested in in doing something with it or at least talking about it. 
And some of that was relatively easy to sort through, but I, I also like, I had a couple of, of weeks after that where I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do mm-hmm. before I kind of uh, settled on the guys that I ended up partnering with, which was uh, a group called Wardrum Studios. Okay. So actually, um, I kind of want to touch on that a little bit. There's a lot of professional developers out there, some friends of ours and some just, you know, people that you meet as being a game developer who are in the seat of like, hey, I have this great game idea, but I'm limited because I can't do art or I can't do engineering or I can't do like they have their discipline and then they let the things that they can't do kind of stop them, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, and you had a very interesting approach, which was you kind of embraced what you couldn't do. And you said, look, I may be limited in these ways, but I'm going to still make something that works with what I can do. Uh, yeah. Is, I mean, can you give us a little more insight on that kind of uh, mentality? Yeah. And, you know, the, the story of the launch of the game is interesting, but I think probably the story of the development that you're alluding to is like more helpful for other indie devs or students who are looking to get into development. Because, yeah, you know, I had a lot of limitations in terms of my own skill and my you know the time I could put into it and things like that. And so what I try to do with pretty much any project I still do this is, is try to figure out what my constraints are and then design around that. So I try to pick a game idea where, you know, the things that I'm weak at don't matter so much mm-hmm. or there's some interesting way of getting around, you know, some problem. Mm-hmm. Um and so like with Oralux, it was like, well, I can't do much, so I'm going to go for minimalism as this sure. aesthetic style. Or, you know, I I can't really get art on my own, and so I found these beautiful images, you know, from NASA that are available in public domain mm-hmm. of, like, you know, pictures of the sun in different spectrums and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And so I use those as the game assets, as kind of the primary uh, feature, of, you know, visual feature of the game. Oh, nice. And I found um, a whole album... On, uh, of Creative Commons music that was all like this kind of nice ambient music and the the concept of the album was that they were all at a, an even 120 beats per minute. And so I used that as kind of a foundation for this musical system mm-hmm. where events in the game always happen on beat. Mm-hmm. And so it can pr- create these sort of procedural melodies or like this feeling of like this hypnotic feeling where the whole game is pulsing to this cons- consistent beat. Yeah. And so this is kind of like cobbled together from like, okay, what can I get for free that's, that's also like high quality and awesome? Can I put them together into co- a coherent whole? That's, and that, that's kind of the story of Oralux. That's, that's, but that's very resourceful, you know? That's a, that's a winning formula. Yeah. Like I, I, I was listening uh, to another podcast, but like, <laughs> uh, it was like about a chemist who's really big on um, – creating supplements and like you know transforming yourself you being more alert or for bodybuilders and builders and stuff but one of the things he was talking about is like you know the biggest thing when you have like a certain goal that seems tough to reach for most people it can be very self-sabotaging to try to do everything yourself like being resourceful being able to be like hey for example if i want to build a car you wouldn't want to build everything from scratch. You wouldn't want to build tires from scratch or anything. You just find whatever tires you can, whatever thing you got to cobble up together and then introduce that interesting element that only you can produce. Mm-hmm. And from that zero to 100, it, it gets a lot easier, right? Because a lot of the times, you know, you get stuck in the the moment of trying to build a certain thing that you're not – is not even the main goal of what yeah. you want to do, right? 
but like hearing what you're saying is exactly that like you 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 knew your restraints and i feel like a lot of the the best games are designed around constraints anyways Mm -hmm. but uh i think a lot of times like what you just did stops a lot of people from doing what they want to do as well because they they're too caught up with trying to make everything 100 percent theirs like if i can jump in for a moment it's like he could have spent time doing art or learning, you know, how to do, I, I guess, create 3D models or something like that. But then imagine how long that extends the life of the project, like just getting it from idea to creation, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's smart. The reason why I wanted him to why I wanted you to touch on that is because we just meet so many people who stop as soon as they mention the limitations. And mm-hmm. it was great to see somebody say, you know what? No, I'm going to embrace this and say, well, look. This is just showing me, like, it's kind of triangulating where I should be operating out of. You know what I mean? And that's yeah. the difference. And I so. think a, a key part of that is I'm blessed that there's a ton of different games that I would be excited to work on. Mm-hmm. You know, the the aspect of video games that I'm really fascinated by are these kind of abstract elements of, like, game mechanics and strategy mm-hmm. and things like that. And I think there are some people where the the aspect of video games that they love is the really grand, you know, visually rich, enormous game world aspect that's really unapproachable as an indie developer. Mm-hmm. So I think I also kind of have this sort of uh, this luck of liking small games, you know, these tightly focused games that are, you know, exploring a particular mechanic or something like that. Um, you know, or I don't mind like making tiny indie games because sure. that's the kind of thing I like to play as well. So can you uh, touch on that? What are some of your faves? Like, uh, I'm assuming maybe Flower, Braid, or uh, maybe even Journey. Have you played? Yeah. yeah. I, I Probably Flower and Braid would have been, you know, my first two answers, uh, <laughs> you know. And yeah. um, Journey I loved as well, but I, I have a kind, I like to have a kind of contrarian viewpoint on Journey because everyone else likes it. Uh. room to criticize it, too. But I won't get into that here. That's, that's just my debating side come up. No, it's okay. Um, it's, this but is yeah. an open forum, man. Games like that, I definitely love. Uh, Rocket League, I think, was awesome. Oh, man. Um, you know, Spelunky was one that I played a ton of. You know, I, I'm sure I could go through my Steam library and just find a ton of these things. Um, you know, I played, when I was growing up, I played a lot of turn-based strategy games mm-hmm. um, and role-playing games and things like that. And, um, you know, I, I played my fair share of, um, of action games and, like, shooters mm-hmm. and stuff like that as well. But I don't think they made quite as much an impact on me. They're they're not yeah. the kind of thing that like captures my imagination. So, it's, especially when you bring up Steam and like the games that you have on the Steam catalog, I I always want to touch on this point here, which is like I feel like Steam has kind of become the haven for like that mid level to like experimental kind of artistic game developer. You know, like remember when PlayStation One was just coming out? There were like the forty nine ninety nine games, and there were like the twenty nine ninety nine, and like even fifteen ninety nine. But they were all brand new games. Like developers mm-hmm. were taking risks and finding different price points for their products. But now I feel like all of the consoles are like, hey, you're either like a sixty dollar game or you're like a downloadable title. And like, there's no, we're not seeing the people taking the risk. We're not seeing the developers saying, hey, you know what? We've kind of got this crazy idea, and we're going to turn it into a full game. But thanks to Steam, we get like Rocket League, and they can be commercially successful. So we can see more games from them. We get the Gone Homes, you know. We get the Limbo's and things like that. And 
I'm so thankful that there's the opportunity for developers who are like, hey, you know, we have like two or three really good mechanics that we've wrapped this incredible story around and we made this experience and it's called Bastion, right? Like, yeah. I'm so happy that there's this opportunity now to professionally still create what I would consider interactive art in video games and not just like Shooter 2010, you know, Shooter 2011, Shooter yeah. 2012. Well, I, that it also kind of is concerning to me as an indie dev um, and the reason for that is like, I think what you're describing is kind of these mid-level games, mm-hmm. and you know the cycle that I, I kind of observed was that these mid-level games died out, and then the indie revolution happened because everyone was sick and tired of just the enormous games mm-hmm. being the only thing that's available. They were so risk averse, um, and recently what we've been seeing is these indies kind of growing their teams and producing bigger games with, you know, higher production values and stuff. And so my worry is um, that might kind of push out the smallest developers again. Because mm-hmm. I look at some of these indie titles, like Bastion had, you know, what, like around a dozen people, or yeah. Rocket League had, you know, a couple dozen. Yeah. And I'm like, that's like 20 times bigger than my team, you know? <laughs> like, how am I going to compete with that? Um, you know, is it possible now five years after Orlux came out for someone to make a game of that size or for you know a mm. student to be doing this as like a side project and to be able to to find the same level of success i don't know if it is you know that is a very interesting question and i now hearing you say that like i i can see exactly what you mean like same thing was happening with kickstarter right like a couple of people mm-hmm. went on kickstarter and made their games and you know top level studios and publishers are like wow this kickstarter thing is a thing let's yeah. take advantage Yep. And then you have like, hey, Capcom is on Kickstarter, or like, you know, like yeah, they're huge... kind of pushing everyone out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what are we gonna do about that, guys? <laughs> I, I think, I think a lot of the channels now, like the social channels, are mm-hmm. is kind of empowering the indie dev. I mean, if you have a certain game that you want to make, there's gonna be an audience that eventually can find you mm-hmm. if you just put yourself out there enough. I think eventually, yeah, maybe Reddit won't be the, you know, Reddit five years ago is a lot harder now, I bet, right? I mean, yeah. y- you probably would know <laughs> a lot better than I would. Yeah, definitely. Like, that, that window has closed a lot. Yeah, but like every day there's some type of social channel that's still being tested, still mm-hmm. new. And I think whatever Reddit was five years ago, there should be now a different type of Reddit. Yeah. At least you're always trying to go with a new community. And I think that's a why, like at least we can go into this too like the lot of the vr is yeah. kind of ripe it's for a new indie. frontier yeah it's a new frontier and indie dev are the only ones willing to take the chance as much uh not so much with the triple a because they're kind of just waiting for it to grow and then they'll take that from us as well but in, <laughs> in the meantime it's kind of like for the community by the community and they're just waiting to see yeah what's i mean Oh, sorry. What's interesting is, and I would love to hear everyone's perspective on this, but like, I feel like VR wasn't VR until Facebook was like $2 billion. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like (laughs) Oculus was like, Hey, this guy made this cool thing. And like valve tried it and they like put it aside. And like, even the girl who like led it for valve was asked to leave the company or something like that. I forget her story, but basically like no one was there. No one wanted to be big on VR. And then Facebook was like, Oh hell no. $2 billion. We see this is going to be a great thing. And then it just exploded, right? So, Brandon, I feel like you're exactly right, that there's a lot of people waiting to just cannibalize and capitalize on the marketplace. So it's going to be incredibly tough for indie devs as we move forward in our video game development careers. But 
I mean, I feel like we're the most flexible, we're the most versatile, and we're the ones that have nothing to lose in a yeah. sense, right? Or we have so little to lose <laughs> that it's easier for us to be mobile. You know what I mean? Is all I'm trying to say. Well, yeah, and I'm working on VR games right now. And, um, you know, before and after this podcast, I'm mm-hmm. going to be crunching on my most recent VR game. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is there's really, like, no better time mm-hmm. than right now. You know, this game should be done yesterday because, you know, it, it's not going to get any better for indie developers. And, and yeah. I, I want to get the game out as quickly as possible so that it can sort of be in this window where indies have time to shine. Because, um, you know, even even now, like, I see kind of the mid-level VR guys coming in and crowding the market a little bit. Yeah, they're um, starting to Sucking rear. out the oxygen from the room. Yeah. <laughs> Which, I mean... To be clear, like, I, I'm not, like... I love those games, and I'm not, yeah. you know, against this sort of market force. I just kind of selfishly want to be able to keep working the way I always have. Yeah, it's... You know, like, if you look at any sort of, like, combat sport, or any sport in general, right, there's, like, weight classes, there's divisions, there's, like, hey, these are the varsity basketball players, and here's the junior varsity basketball players. In game development, like, in our business, it's like, nah, it's every man for himself. Either you work for EA or you don't, you know, but you're still competing for the same customers. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's David versus Goliath, you know, and we've got to come up with the best sling and stone routine that we've got. Are you familiar with the term indie apocalypse? Uh, please educate the audience. <laughs> it is. It's a term that started getting thrown around last year mm-hmm. um, as kind of a description of this trend of uh, bigger, more polished indie games failing in the market, mm. you know, not being able to to make back their you know their, their development cost, um, or just like sort of falling below expectations. In this general sense that, you know, the the number of games being released every day on Steam and elsewhere is just skyrocketing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it it seems like it's way harder to get attention. You know, being indie is not itself a selling point at all anymore. And, you know, it used to be. And, yeah, so, like, just this this burst of a bubble in, you know, the indie market. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a lot of discussion about that at GDC this year. And there was a fair amount of pushback, too, of people saying pretty much, you know, the game business has always been hard. It, is, it has always been this so difficult, in part because it's so fun and everyone wants to do it. Yeah. And so maybe the, the right way to look at this is not that, like, a bubble's bursting or that it's an apocalypse, but rather this is the end of a golden age. Mm-hmm. You know, there was this period of enormous opportunity, which Orlux definitely fits into as part of that story. And now we're kind of reverting back to normal, where it's really difficult to get noticed, and it's really difficult to make a successful game. Um, but, you know, I think that that is the reality going forward. Yeah. You have to find some way to be exceptional. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you, the the attention is definitely tougher to grab, but, like, at the same time, the audience has grown an insane amount. And yeah. I feel like the, 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 the players now are are getting way savvier as in they know the game companies that made them <laughs> mm-hmm. like like a little sense like that a little knowledge really helps us developers try to reach out to them in some way like I, i'm surprised some of the times when they know the difference between like infinity ward and treyarch and mm-hmm. like <laughs> stuff that's happening with them or or different companies like they they're pretty pretty savvy with the news mm-hmm. and i think you know minecraft has like a huge part on like introducing a lot of these young level designers basically yeah. into the market and uh the cell phone is of course a 
plays a huge hand in just having the general accept gaming as like a, a respectable platform. Like it's a, it's great and it's okay to play and you don't have to be a nerd to play a game. Like that's that wall is yeah. down. Like it's gone. Everyone's yeah. a gamer nowadays. And so, on the sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, man. <laughs> on the developer side of things as well. Um, it's never been easier to make a game with like the, the game engines, Unity, and things like that. Yeah. Uh, those barriers are coming down in a big way. So I think you're absolutely absolutely right that the market changing. You know, it's not always in, in all in bad ways, or mm-hmm. ways that are you know bad for indie developers. You know, yeah. in, in a lot of ways, the opportunity is bigger than ever before. You know, it's just lots of other people notice that as well. Right. Like. <sighs> As an indie developer nowadays, like what kind of communities do you get involved with? Public meetups or, or things like that, or you stay within the forums? Like how how do you stay connected with a lot of these guys? Um, I go to kind of all of the above. I go to local meetups. I'm in San Diego, which is not a huge game development hub, but there are a couple different meetups for like you know for VR for indie developers, the local IGDA chapter, and I try to attend those. And then, yeah, I'm also on a couple of different forums, um, mailing lists, Skype chats, things like that. You know, I'm, I still frequent uh, Reddit a lot, mostly the Oculus subreddit. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so that's one way that I try to keep in touch. And, and you feel like uh, staying connected at least helps you with updates from other developers, tools, and stuff like that. Do you feel like it also helps you connect with the audience that you eventually want to reach? Yeah, yeah, I think it's important to do both of those things. You know, the um, I'm on Twitter a lot as well, which I think is a great way of like keeping track of developers. But I also I try to make some effort to you know keep an eye on what's going on in like the wider gaming sphere and try to see kind of what the trends are because like it's useful if you can um, pick up on when something is becoming a big deal or becoming an important part of gaming, like uh, the rise of streaming. We're on Twitch right now, right? Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, that's, that's a big part. You know, that's a big thing. And, um, it, you know, I think it matters if you figure that out kind of when it's, um, when it's rising versus when, you know, when everyone's doing it. Yeah. Um, and it, I think there's always different things like that that are coming up or fading away. And it's nice to, you know, kind of keep an ear to the ground. It's, I mean, it's necessary because we don't really have the time or the money to force our way into everyone's homes. You know what I mean? Like that's what the big companies are doing. We have to be so nimble and so cunning with all the moves that we make as indie devs and our foresight just has to be incredible. And if it's not, maybe you're just lucky, but you really have to think about it. Like, man, I need to stay on the pulse. I need to stay connected and I need to do any possible thing I can do. That's going to help my brand, but also get awareness out. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, I often see some developers who make the mistake of like, I'm just going to make my game. I'm like, okay, cool. So what are you doing to like build your audience? Well, we'll worry about that later. Like, okay, well, how much of your budget are you considering for marketing? Well, we're going to spend all of that on making the game good. And I'm like, oh, okay. You know, I, I wish you luck. Don't get me, don't get me wrong. Like, it's not that they're doing it wrong. It's just, there's some things that we can't afford not to do. You know what I mean? And I feel like if you're trying to ensure success, you can't overlook things like actually spending money on marketing and not just relying on free stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Go ahead. uh, So uh, do you have any specific suggestions that you could, 
I guess, give to an audience that's just talking about marketing here? Uh, maybe like, yeah, you know, I did do some word of mouth. I did do the Reddit drop and it was partnerships that helped. But was there anything that you specifically did marketing wise that gave you way better return than you thought, you know, going into it? Um, it's a tough call for Orlux, especially, you know, I, even now I don't have a great understanding of how it did as well as it did. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the, the Reddit thing was important, but it was mostly important for just kind of getting that initial spark of interest that got the game eventually to mobile. Um, once it did that, the game was involved with a couple of um, kind of tie-ins. So, like, initially, the uh, the guys that ported the game had a deal with NVIDIA, mm-hmm. where the game was temporarily exclusive to NVIDIA platforms, like any phone that had an NVIDIA Tegra chip in it, because okay. that was a new thing that they were trying to push. And in in response to that, NVIDIA did some marketing where, like, in their app, this game was pushed, you know, it's kind of featured at the top. Oh, nice. And so that helped early on. And then later the game, you know, got available everywhere, and um, Google ended up featuring it, which was awesome. And um, when it came out to iOS, I made, like, a follow-up Reddit post that was kind of like, you know, two years ago, I released this game for... And look where it is now. Isn't that awesome? And that actually got some attention early on as well. Um, You know, that that also got to the top of the gaming subreddit. Um, Though I I tried doing a third post sometime down the line, (laughs) and that got kicked out because they, you know, started getting more strict about self-promotion rules. Gotcha. Um, For my later games, I've been doing VR development, and for both of the games that I've done so far, they started out... Uh, be as prototypes for game jams that were sponsored by these uh, bigger companies, mm-hmm. by Oculus, yeah. um, most especially. So, like, my first game, Oculus and IndieCade teamed up to do a, a game jam, and the game won that, you know, as a prototype. Oh, nice. And so that was one nice way of kind of getting attention. And then it was so early on that, you know, I was able to meet some of the, the early journalists and podcasters and things like that. Um, and, you know try to sort of use that as leverage going forward where, I, you know, if I talk to a new, you know, I'm pitching to a new journalist or something, I can refer back to that and be like, oh, look, you know, Polygon did this preview mm-hmm. super early on when yeah. my game was the only game you could play on the Oculus. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I guess it's kind of, it's been very scrappy. It's been very ad hoc. It's kind mm-hmm. of like looking for these opportunities as they come up. And along the way, you know, I've been, um, I did like dev blogging on one of my games and I posted to Facebook and Reddit and I submitted the games to award shows and I like had booths at PAX and stuff like that and some local events. So there was a lot of activity, but it's hard to say which ones kind of were the most effective. Mm -hmm. You know, it... I don't really have a great way of measuring that. And I think to some extent, it's like this big cumulative effect where people only pay attention to your game after they've heard of it a couple times before. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to say, like, which of those efforts was, was most valuable. Yeah. But, you, I mean, you dropped the gem right there. People only start paying attention to your game after they've heard of it a couple of times. Yeah. So spam. <laughs> <laughs> oh wait, no, no, that's in twice. No, dude, that's so. I got a funny, a funny little, uh, I guess, story right now that I'll drop. So I run this group on Facebook called the Unity Developers. Right? It's just for people who like making games in Unity. 
And the first year that it was open, people were like, hey, this is my project. What do you guys think? I'm looking for feedback. Okay. Th- yeah. Like there was actual talk. And then, you know, like you start to get into like 100 people, 200 people. I'm like, okay, this is cool. Then we reached a point where people just saw that it had activity and a lot of members. They mm-hmm. would request to join. And then as soon as they came in, hey, go download, go download my game, 99 cents. And it's like, okay. And then you see tomorrow another post by the same person. Yeah. Hey, seriously, go download my game, 99 cents. And then the whole thing just turned into self-promotion. It, like, and marketing. For one and year, best. it was cool. And then a one year, one day, it was completely ruined. Yeah, the, uh-huh. the group is useless now. You, you got to lie to me a bit. It's like, hey guys, you know, I'm just what do you think about this podcast episode? What's up? Dropping it here. You know, you give a little bit of personality, and maybe I actually read into it. Yeah. But the one thing that you did talk about, uh, like you were talking about, yeah, some of it's luck, but I feel like most of it has to do with uh, opening yourself up to opportunities, like attending certain things and putting yourself out there. So that you might have a, a interested investor, or you might have an interested developer that wants to join up with you. Mm-hmm. So the biggest problem with with indie developers that don't succeed is that they always sit in their cave and they feel like if the game's good on its own, then it's going to market itself, which is the biggest mistake. Because you're you're just one in a million, and and you're not going to make any any sound any 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 thump of any kind. To anyone, if you just come out and just feel like, hey, you know, I know how good this game is, so you should too. Yeah. <laughs> or just start spamming Larry's forum. <laughs> but, no, I'm serious. Like, if you release a game, like, on Steam or, or worse, like, the App Store, right? Like, they get so many a day. Like, I wonder how long you actually stay on some sort of curated page of, like, what's new. Like, I'm sure on the hours. App Store, it's, like, hours? Like, okay. For, on Steam, you're, you're guaranteed a certain number of impressions. Okay. And I'm told you go through that really quickly yeah like for 45 seconds depending on like i i think on the itunes store i wouldn't see an app on there for more than like an hour and you're mm-hmm. already pushed off by somebody else you know yeah yeah you, it's scary you, it's it's a lot of it's kind of lazy to leave it up to other people to promote your game yeah that's true <laughs> that's true i would like say this oh yeah, go, go ahead, ahead. Well, I mean, you're a brand, right? Yeah. So who cares about you the most but you? And if you don't put time and effort behind it, who else would? Mm-hmm. It just doesn't make sense if you think that way. Yeah, I almost feel like all the stuff, so like your app store, the Steam homepage, anything that just happens automatically because you've made your game, I would say like don't even count on that. Like Don't even include that in your marketing plan because that's automatic. Like You have to think about how can I get people to actually give me time of day for my product? And yeah. I'm going to shout out a friend of mine, a personal friend of mine. His name is Norman Wilson, uh, who ha- who made his own game for like the last five or six years. I've been following him on Facebook as he's been like making his own game. And it's a ninja game. And this dude dressed up in a ninja costume and walked around a college campus giving out, giving out flyers for his game and taking pictures with people and stuff. And it really touched me because I was like, man, this is a guy who's like, yes, this could be humiliating, right? Like it, people could look at me and like take me for a joke, but I'm creating an event that people are going to talk about, right? Like I'm, people mm-hmm. don't see this every day. I'm creating something new and I'm getting the word around for my game. And he, I don't know what his adoption rate was or how many impressions he generated, but I bet it was a lot more than just an email blast or like putting it on Facebook to his friends who probably aren't going to look at it anyway. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I have to, I have to, like that kind of thinking is where I see success uh, for indie level stuff. Like, hey, you know what? You have to get out there and make a splash somehow, some way, and be creative and do it in a way that other people aren't. 
Yeah, and one thing that that journalists will say, or, you know, I've heard from from several different journalists in terms of advice, is like you have to have a story associated with your game, mm-hmm. something interesting, and it it cannot just be that your game is launching or your game is done. Because there's a billion games out there, and the launch of a game just is not interesting in itself anymore. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there has to be like some angle or some something especially funny or exciting or interesting or intriguing about it, and that could be you know anything, um, including you know hey look at how silly I look dressed up as a ninja costume on my college campus or something like that, mm-hmm. you know, or it could be you know hey look at my post mortem of my the game I released five years ago. By the way, I'm releasing a sequel soon. Oh, mm-hmm. there you go. Yeah, I. Um, how do you feel about give to get? You know, like I guess as far as a game developer is concerned, that's kind of like here's a free demo now. Buy the game when you're when it's released, right? Like, is that something that you employ in in your strategies now? Is like, what can I give away for free about my game to then generate some interest? Is that still valid? Like game demos? Um, I think so. I think it, it depends a lot. Um, I think, you know, if w- the big concern I have with demos is there's a lot of people who would be interested in your game and they, you know, if they would happily buy your game and be satisfied with the purchase, mm-hmm. but the demo gives them enough for free that mm-hmm. they're no longer interested in buying your game. It's not just used as an evaluation, it's used as a substitute. And mm-hmm. so I think creating a demo and, you know, and using that is like, very much a uh, a difficult, you know, art. Um, that said, I've released demos for all of my games <laughs> along the way. Yeah. And most of the time what that's included is like some sort of pretty limited demo pre-release. And then the demo's not available uh, in most cases after the game is released. And so it's, it's purely like a marketing tool. Yeah. Um, I'm generally... I, I'm not too stingy about giving stuff away for free. You know, like, Orlux first got that spark because I gave it away for free for 24 hours with literally just, like, a an unguarded public link for mm-hmm. downloading the game. Um, anybody could get it. And I posted it on Reddit, but, you know, anyone could take it. And then, and of course, it was pirated after that, and who cares? I can't control that. Um, with Darknet, which was my first VR game, um, it was launched on the, the Gear VR, Samsung's mobile headset, in December 2014, but it wasn't until March of 2015 that they had a payment solution hooked up to their store. Mm. So for the first three months, you could not sell your game. You could only give stuff away for free. Gotcha. And so um, in most cases, what people did is they delayed their launch or they built like a scaled-down demo and released that. And I decided that this was a good opportunity. So I, I released the full game for free, and I said... Again, this is like my gift to the early adopters. If you happen to be one of the people who buys this headset in the first three months, you can just have the game for free, you know, no, no qualifications. Yeah. And the effect of that was, for those first three months, my game was the only substantial, like, full-sized game that anyone could get for this platform. Oh, man. And so it really stood out. And meanwhile, the, the number of early adopters was really low. You know, it was like fewer than 10,000 people actually downloaded it. And so now, you know, I think that paid dividends later because, you know, when the store actually went live, I had hundreds and hundreds of really positive reviews, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when people actually did start showing up as actual paying consumers. So, you know, I, I think 
there's some people who argue, you know, that you shouldn't give too much away for free on principle because it's kind of it screws up the market. But um, I, I guess I've just I've never really thought of it in those terms. It's always seemed to me like, you know, you you have to have some give people some reason to care, find some way to stick out, and this is just one tool in an indie developer's arsenal. Yeah, this kind of leads into my question right here, which is. Mm-hmm. Your thoughts on Let's Play, and you kind of touched on it, piracy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how, how do you feel about that? Does it hamper your sales? Do you care? Do you see it as a marketing tool as well? Or do you feel like, you know, the more ways to reach out, the better yeah. to set you up for the next, next tour? Um, well, I would say those are two very different things in my eyes. You know, piracy, I really don't support. Like, I, I don't think piracy is, like, okay yeah. But I also think fighting against it is totally useless and you know it's like it just it doesn't really do me any favors to care about it or to to worry, you know, spend my time worrying about it. So yeah. piracy happens, those people aren't the people who are going to buy my game. I'm not going to think about it. Mm-hmm. You know. Um as long as there are healthy markets on Steam and the App Store and things like that then not a problem. If you um, at, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, no, let's Go ahead and okay. ask the question before I move on to something totally different. Sure. Uh, if you were to look at the way that piracy kind of has affected the music industry and mm-hmm. think about that application to games, and by that I mean music used to cost money everywhere, then piracy happened, Napster more specifically, because that's I guess, is the, the most public catalyst for this transition. People are like, oh, I can get music for free? Well, I want music for free. And then, you know, musicians complained musicians fought against it and then eventually they embraced it when businesses came up with ideas of hey well you know what let's give them music for free let's add commercials to it and call it a streaming service like spotify or Mm -hmm. you know or they can pay a premium which we'll also share with you if they listen to your music without the ads so either way we can give you some money so at least they're getting music for quote-unquote free and you're getting you know some money back and converting them from being a full-on pirate to now just being I don't know, uh, a, a low-paying customer. Um, do you feel like that sort of transition is going to happen to the game industry as well, where people are like, hey, you know what? I can get games for free. Well, I want games for free. Well, the only way we can sell games now is either through subscription services or paid endorsements or in-game advertising. Yeah, I, I really don't know. Um, you know, I think there's kind of a, a convenience gap where like pirating a game has always been more difficult than pirating music. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I rem- I had friends who pirated games a lot in high school and like we could do LAN parties and stuff and everybody had to have the same games. And so they were very active at that point. Yeah. And it was always like an enormous hassle. And half the ones you download had viruses and like just or didn't work for some reason, blah, blah, blah. So I think that might be kind of the one thing that prevents the two, you know, games from being sh- sharing the same fate as music. Yeah. But... That's not really a very, you know, substantial uh, stronghold, like the, or, or wall, preventing the pirates from, you know, doing what they'll do. So, I, I I guess this is really not my forte, being able to speculate on this kind of thing. But as long as there is like a, a convenient way of being able to get music or to get games. I think most people will probably take the legal route. And, you know, one thing that also pushed people towards piracy with music is 
they'd complain about wanting one song and having to buy the whole album, go to a music store and get a CD or something. And it really just was so much nicer to be able to just go get the music you wanted. Yeah. Yeah. And so now that, you know, you can do that with Spotify or something like I subscribe to Spotify, minimized on my desktop right now. And I'm happy to pay for it because like, yeah, value for it. I'm, I want to support the people who make the music. Great. That said, it's, it's certainly more complicated than that because my understanding is musicians don't get very well paid for, you know, the music that's played through Spotify. So yeah. I don't know if like the market has actually figured out a, a good stable solution that supports the art and, uh, and the artists as well as, you know, preventing people from going to piracy. Yeah, I guess in gaming, right? Like I think Activision kind of adopted that in Black Ops 3 where they're like, hey, you know what? You can play any level in single player that you want, but you should probably play them in this order, right? Like, I don't think I'll ever be able to play Uncharted. Like, you know, I don't want to play level one. I just want to go right into level six or something like that. I don't know if I'll get a la carte from them. But I definitely know that the way that the music industry has adapted is like, look, music consumption as individual songs is a lot lower than it used to be. But you know what? They can't pirate a live concert. They can't pirate like one-on-one specific experiences where I show up at their school or I show up in their town and like sign t-shirts or whatever. So... I think those prices have gone up because they no longer make as much off of music. You know what I mean? Like, or at least that's right. what I would do. So I don't know how that applies to gaming though, but I just know that like, if I see a consumer trend in a similar, in a similar or related industry, I then start to prepare for that to happen in my industry. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I can, and, and oh, go ahead. Well, just to speculate a little, well, I mean, it is happening within the gaming industry. I think steam helped a lot with the piracy issue. It has made it convenient. It has dug up all the old games that used to be in PS2 form or whatever and now made it so that, you know, it's within your library forever. And that convenience of like, oh, you don't have to always have it in your hard drive. It's in cloud. Whenever you want to go grab it, just download it for that time and play it again. Those those summer sales, <laughs> those those winter sales have helped a lot of indie developers just get noticed, you know, because we price it a lot lower, but it drives up volume. Um, Like, I I feel like the music industry or or other types of industry should be looking at us as a way. And even, like, with movies nowadays, Netflix has completely solved, like, the binging and, and, and... and everything that you have to wait to to a lot of people would pirate TV shows or movies or whatever because it's out of inconvenience right now they can just go to Netflix and be able to dig through it and just watch it by paying it like a ten dollar a month type of service. Mm-hmm. I mean, you guys are touching on the point that Spotify, yeah, it's super convenient, but the problem is like the dividends is not there and it's giving up um, giving up that space. For competition, someone's going to come in and solve that problem. And and if you can, you know, since they have such a clutch on audience, but like social media is so so good now that people are starting to hear that Spotify is kind of screwing the artists. That they're like, no one likes hearing corporate winning, so they're going to wait for an underdog who who does just as well as Spotify, but like gives us justice and maybe just enough of an edge to make it different. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's my yeah, speculation. And- and I think like the artists are also going to be pretty proactive in that respect too, like figuring out other strategies, um, like you know the live concerts that Larry was mentioning. 
but I think one analogy in the game world is the rise of in-app purchases. Mm-hmm. Um, and before that, the rise of like multiplayer games and stuff yeah. like that. You know, um, the kind of always online stuff where they can do more to fight the pirates. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's funny that those are things that like the hardest core gamers really hate. Um, but I think that's kind of a natural adaptation to worrying about piracy. Like, you know, if you can offer the bulk of your game for free as like a viable business strategy, then I think that makes pirating the game a lot more technically difficult and just a lot less appealing to begin with, you know, because the first however many hours are going to be the same no matter how you get it. So, you know, why go through illegal channels? Mm. Yeah. How do you feel uh, as an indie dev? A lot of smaller studios have been like fighting against piracy with like in-game trolling. You know, like uh, oh, if this is the pirated version, you'll never be able to beat this boss no matter what you do. Or if this is the pirated version, we're gonna like I don't know. Like they do stuff inside of the pirated version somehow. You know, um, I guess they just release a build themselves that is fake and they let the pirates grab onto that or whatever. But I mean, how do you feel about that practice as an indie dev? I think it's funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I think it's, um, it's fine. You know, I, I'm not too concerned about the pirates welfare, mm-hmm. but, um, I also think it, it's probably not going to actually do a whole lot to combat piracy. Mm-hmm. I think it is primarily useful for indie developers as a way of getting your game on a news site mm-hmm. because you did some funny thing to stick it to the pirates. Oh, you know, yeah. I, I remember I've seen, I saw like, the exact same kind of story of like some funny thing that they did with the pirate, you know, the pirate version, like five or six years ago or mm-hmm. something like that. And then I think everyone forgot. And then there was another crop of stories that did the same thing. And, you know, there, there are stories of people who like made a big deal about giving their game away. You know, like I'm going to seed my game on this torrent site myself mm-hmm. because I don't think piracy is that bad. And them taking that stand, you know, it was not really that consequential except in that it got them attention in the press Mm. so like in in that respect i'm kind of like hey good for you do what you got to do man yeah that's that's that creative and cunning you know nature that i was talking about earlier it's Mm -hmm. like i'm gonna generate thirty thousand dollars worth of advertising with thirty thousand dollars worth of potential sales but potential sales don't (laughs) necessarily exist in my bank account today so therefore it's a good trade-off yeah Hmm. yeah exactly I'm learning so much about business in this. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's one of those things that, yeah, I mean, if you're if you're just like a, a drop in the water, right? How do you get noticed? Well, you were talking about spreading your news, just letting people play, get, getting a little piece of who you are. I mean, you got to be kind of open to that. You can't expect to, at least with any any developer, you can't expect to be rich off your first game, right? You just want to get noticed, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. So, if with that mindset, you can kind of turn piracy around but just like offering it for free like a lot of the strategies you've been implementing that has been successful it's like hey this is me this is my name this is my game check it out it's completely free you know if it's decent give me a like and that's slowly gonna build an audience for yourself for for something you want to do next like to compare it to the film world uh, I mean, it's not like uh, Tarantino released his first movie for free <laughs> but he had his one-two punch like when he was making Pulp Fiction, he knew that he wanted to save that till when he and a and a better name. But he made Reservoir Dogs with those constraints, like it was just three locations with a few actors. 
but he knew that for him to be substantial in the industry and know that he's just not a one-shot guy, he had Pulp Fiction ready to go mm-hmm. as soon as Reservoir Dogs was a success. And I think a lot of indie developers can learn a lot from that formula that is not just exclusive to creative industry. It's just anywhere, really. So you got to have that one-two punch. Like you got to create that investment money for the game that you want to make. You you might not want to make your first game being like the ultimate game, anyways, because of the constraints. But just enough to get you to the second game, to where at least now you have an audience, and now you're for real want to support yeah. yourself and move out of your mom's house. <laughs> yeah, making making a first sustainable game is difficult enough without yeah. making it your ultra dream project magnum opus. <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. And it, uh, it can be uh, crazy if you know if you fail <laughs> if you the, put all your hopes into it. It's the sign of the true beginner in my eyes. And I'm like, oh, so what's the first game you're gonna make? Oh, it's like, and they tell me like nine games that they're <laughs> melding into one. I'm like, oh boy, all right. <laughs> um, here's one thing that I'll say, and I want to I want to get your thoughts on this, uh, E. So I look at companies that have had a lot of longevity, you know, have gone up and down, but are still around. And I think Blizzard is like one of my favorite companies in the sense that they have made and cultivated their audience from almost day one, right? Like everything that they do somehow is like they go back and do things for the fans. They cultivate their community. They have people, not just Mm -hmm. a community manager, but like teams of people who their whole responsibility is just community outreach, right? continuously keeping their audience involved in their developments and their products. And how can it not be anything but a success when you have people who like are diehard fans who like will absorb every piece of information that you put out there. And as soon as they can purchase or even pre-purchase a game, they've already bought two copies. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Do you think indie studios can ever reach any sort of level of similar success with their community development? Uh, maybe not the size, but like effectiveness. I think, yeah, that's definitely a strategy. Mm. I think in general, I'm pretty cynical and like, you know, I think almost any strategy is is going to be difficult. And that's that's a, a particularly hard one, I think. Like, you know, in I think most people who set out saying, I'm going to be all about community, I'm doing this for the fans, we're going to develop a great relationship, most of those people are doomed to failure. Mm. That said, I do know of at least a couple different uh, indie studios that have followed that model and are really successful with it. Um, and there's actually a couple, like, uh, I think the best example is Spiderweb Software, which is um, indie developer Jeff Vogel. And he makes these really old-school-style RPGs, and they're all kind of, um, you know, variations on the same tech. It's mostly like him making new content. They look, you know, pretty old-school. But he has this uh, group of fans that will come back and buy each game again and again and again. Um, you know, and he can like go back and release, you know, uh, remastered versions and stuff like that. And Mm -hmm. people will get into that. Um, you know, it's like just this very loyal niche and, um, that follows him around and keeps him sustained. And he's been doing it for something like 15 or 20 years. It's crazy. Um, so yeah, you know, I think that's a case where like this guy found his fans and served them and that was his model. And it, it, has worked for him and is still working for him. I don't know if I could do that, <laughs> but you know, um, you know, it definitely can work. Yeah, I mean, and it sounds like he's also giving them what they're looking for. Like they know that his products fit in a very specific niche, 
And so yeah. before he even announces, they're like, yeah, we're down because it's part of these three things that we know that he develops. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and, and there are also, there's definitely like the studios that just have a ton of fans, you know, not because necessarily they're oriented towards that, but just because they were so successful before mm-hmm. that people will follow them around. Um, Tim Schafer. Yeah. John Blow to some <laughs> oh, extent too. Yeah. You know, I, I was a fan of his because not, not really because of Braid, though I did love Braid, but because of, you know, the, the stuff that he said about Braid and like, you know, his positions on things and like the, the way he expressed his uh, thoughts on game design, mm-hmm. you know, to the wider world. And that's really what made me sort of like fall in love with John Blow and follow, you know, follow the development of The Witness so closely. And, you know, buy that on day one. And I think there were maybe not game designers, but but other people who were interested in the same way who, you know, followed that development, you know, for the same reason. Yeah. I feel like a lot of the strength with indie developers and is the same as our weakness, which is there's only a few of us. Like, I think uh, we're not taking advantage, at least the lesser successful indie developers don't take advantage of the fact that their face and personality can sell a lot. Like within the least of the gaming development team, uh, we have very similar traits and stuff. And you putting yourself out there, you're gonna find someone that is gonna agree with your opinions and your thoughts on on different stuff. It doesn't have to be always about your game. It's just like, hey, I kind of like this guy, therefore I, I will buy into whatever he's doing. And uh, I think a lot of the times some guys kind of miss that and they don't really put themselves out as much mm-hmm. and always just talking about, Hey man, I'm selling this. It's like, Oh, you're that spammer. Yeah. All right. cool. <laughs> yeah. I think you can make it about the game, which most people do, or you can make it about yourself or you can make it about the fans or you can make it about the genre that you're specializing in. You know, there are different strategies and appropriate for different developers. Yeah. I mean, I've seen like a—I don't know—I forgot the. Uh, there was this uh, the student who who just put out like it was in Reddit actually, uh, probably a couple a few months ago. It was like this this one screenshot. It's very stylistic, and it was just a deer in front of it. But it was made by like a sophomore in high school, mm-hmm. in uh, in Australia or something. Mm. Let me let me try to look up the name. But the fact is, like this, the, the the attention grabber was that he was a high school student who was making an indie game, and that since then he he's he's still developing the game, but now he's like a full on indie developer. Doesn't have to worry about the college if he doesn't want to. Mm-hmm. But like it's the story that comes from just making the game too can be like a attention grabber. Like, yeah, it doesn't that can have be to be story. That could be the. And people was like, "Oh, cool!" Or like, uh, "Father too." I, I work full time, and I wanted to make my own game, and this is what I'm making. Check it out. Like, all right, like I, I will give you a chance because I am a father of two, or something like that. And I would mm-hmm. also want to know how you did it and how to repeat the success that you're having. Yeah. Um, kind of going a little bit further back, like you're coming from college. You have this awesome, like, at least push to do what you want to do. And you're learning as you go. So when that, that these developers are reaching out to you to turn your game 
into mobile. How was that relationship like? I mean, I'm, I'm sure you were dealing with people. Did you just just went without any advice, or you were just just seeking? I, I freaked out, and I, you know, uh, didn't know what to do for a while, and kind of flopped around. Not, you know, I asked for advice from a bunch of different sources, and um, I actually like. I remember going to the business school at my college and talking to the guy who specialized in startups, the professor and like sitting down with him to talk to him about whether he, what he thought was a good idea and what I needed to be thinking about. Um, the common advice that I got from a lot of people was to, you know, work with a lawyer before I signed anything. And, um, a lot of advice that I got also, I I reached out to some um, independent developers as well. And, the indie scene is great, and you know there are people who I saw as these kind of idols, like people who had worked on uh, games that I really admired, and they were willing to talk to me and give me advice as well. Yeah. And a lot of what they said was like, you know, trust your gut, and um, you know, don't don't agree to work with somebody that you know you you don't feel like you can trust. Um, and I, you know, I, I definitely. Mostly, I just felt like I was floundering. Like, I just didn't know what I was doing. And, you know, I, I talked to the uh, these different guys who were, you know, offering to help me with the game. And, um, you know, one of them was kind of making a better offer than the others by a fair amount and sounded like something that kind of would work with my life in terms of, you know, me having to graduate from college in the next several months. And... um you know, I, I worked with a lawyer as well, and that was kind of nightmarish mm. because the stuff the lawyer cared cared about was really not stuff that I cared about. Um, like which his you know, retainer fees. Not so much <laughs> no, that. I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, th- there was this kind of feeling of like, well, can I trust the lawyer? Like, is you know, are they yeah. really like doing what's best for me, including yeah. that kind of thing. So you know, it was all very anxiety inducing. Did you find um, the lawyer online, or was it recommended? No, I, or? I, I found him through uh, through contacts. I don't remember who exactly, but through like the responsible adults in my life. Right. Uh, yeah. It might have been through my parents, you know. <laughs> and he uh, he wasn't like a games guy, but he was like a media rights guy. Right. Um. So I ended up eventually, like, after being a little too litigious, uh, signing a contract. Um, the one thing it did not have was a deadline. Mm. Or, or like a time timeline for development. And then, you know, immediately after that, development slowed down and ended up taking a lot longer than I expected it to. And that was uh, that first, like, year and a half in between signing the deal and the first version of the game coming out on mobile, that was pretty awkward and, and you know, unhappy, I'd say. Because, yeah. um, like... You know, I was talking with my friends, too, you know, and everyone was like, oh, you're, like, signing with these this game studio I've never heard of? Make sure you're not getting scammed or something. I, you know, who are they? Yeah. And then a year and a half later, we're having this conversation of, like, so whatever happened to that game of yours? It's not out yet, huh? Mm. Oh, man. Yeah. And then the game came out, and it did really well, and I have a good relationship with those guys now, and everything ended happily. Yeah. But... It- and you called all your salad <laughs> friends and be like, hey, uh. <laughs> yeah. I sent them all that polygon. How are you guys right? doing, man? Here's <laughs> some clickbait for you. You still at school? Oh, okay, cool. All right. 
Um, so, like, I, I feel, again, like, I got pretty lucky where I just, um, I was not in a position to make a really smart decision, I think. Right. And then it all turned out for the best in the end. But uh, yes. even, like, along the way, it was not really clear whether that was the case. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely something that you're not, uh, well, I mean, prep to to deal with. Right? A lot of these things, it's it's definitely a rare opportunity to come out of college with a hit game, pretty much. Yeah. And uh, you keep saying luck, Ben, but in retrospect, hearing you saying your story, you made some killer moves to yeah. make things happen. Like, creating yeah. opportunities was huge. But yeah, maybe the day-to-day stuff getting things legalized, talking to big companies, investing. I mean, these are things that you definitely have to kind of get thrown in and then learn at the same time or just seek advice from trusted friends and family around you. But the creating those opportunities was like your intuition was so key. And it still is like the number one thing most developers don't have <laughs> when it comes to these things. Yeah. Did well, you always... Did you study that, or was it just something you've always thought of and put into practice finally when you had the chance? Um, I, I guess I. You know, do you know the saying "luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity"? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think you know there is still some of that in play. Where mm-hmm. what, the advantage I had was um, that I was really plugged into the gaming world. And, you know, like I, I kind of I had enough of a sense of how people would react to figure out like the Reddit thing. Um, and I had enough of a sense for like what could make like a, a, a good game that's, you know, really minimal to um, to have this this concept for, you know, for Oralux of, of something that I could feasibly build myself, but would still be of interest to people. Um and then, you know, there there were still, like, several points along the way where, in retrospect, it all could have gone off the rails and ended very easily. Um, so I, I still think, you know, I have to to call that luck to some extent that I, you know, mm-hmm. I didn't end up in the ditch. Um, but I think w- maybe what I did right along the way was just having trying to have an eye for where the opportunities were. Mm. Um, you know, and I, that's probably, that's too vague, I think, to be really helpful advice. Um, but I guess maybe the way to look at it is that I really loved games getting into it. And I really loved indie games and I really loved Reddit, which was the community that, you know, kind of gave me this boost. Mm. And because of that, I spent a ton of time, you know, learning about those things and being immersed in them. And that gave me just naturally the understanding that allowed me to take the path that I took. Right. Just being a part of the system and then learning how the system works a little. Yeah. And, and like, you know, I never had to like suffer through a period of like studying up on stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, maybe I should have suffered through like some business training or something like that. But, uh, everything that got me up to that point was just because, you know, I was doing what I enjoyed and that gave me an advantage in itself. You know, just that exposure um, 
afforded a better understanding of the market and the opportunities around it. All right. Well, sir, I can say one thing. Um, if you believe in luck, it's going to help you at least keep your sanity because a lot of people will be like, oh, I did all this. I can repeat the success. Yeah. And that's when they fall flat. So yeah. I'm happy that you're making smart moves, but then also you're saying, you know, and there are some things that I believe may have just worked out in my favor that were slightly beyond my control. Yeah, and you cannot take those for granted. Yes, sir. Well, at this time, we are an hour into the podcast, so congratulations. You have achieved a podcast episode, and we want to thank <laughs> you for being here. And our gift to you, sir, is we will just shut up and let you tell our audience whatever you'd like, promote, plug, announce, uh, brag, however you want to handle this, but the next couple minutes are all yours. All right. Well, I'll, I'll keep it pretty brief. Um, I have a website, emcneil.com. That's E-M-C-N-E-I-L-L. And that just lists all of my games. So if you're interested in seeing my, uh, my VR projects recently, there, that's a place to check that out. And the uh, the news that I think is kind of the most germane to what we've been talking about is that the sequel for Orlux, which is called Orlux Constellations, that's a collaboration between me and the same company that ported the original game to mobile, is finishing up and it's going to be released within a month or two. Nice. And so keep an eye out for that. Um, you can hear about that on OrluxGame.com. It's got a ton of new features. You know, it's I think we found a pretty clever way of being able to keep the game minimal while still being able to explore a lot of new territory. So uh, take a look at that if you're at all interested in the original game. I think it's going to be uh, pretty cool. Awesome. Um, well, since I'm the one that's talking right now and I've got the microphone and I seem to always try to go first, I'm really sorry, but that's just the way it is. Later, Charles. Thanks for listening. Good night. Hey, this is Brandon Fam. I'll see you guys next week. And E. McNeil. Oh, I didn't realize it was my no, turn. No, it's okay. <laughs> Just leave already. <laughs> Sorry. Well, hey, man, this has been a fantastic episode, and we really appreciate you dropping all this insight. And I'm going to take my new online business degree that I earned from this podcast, <laughs> and I'm going to go implement it. So I'll see you guys later. All right. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast and you want to stay in touch or continue to follow our developments, then you need to go to facebook.com forward slash game dev unchained and drop a like and stay in touch. You can also get the direct feed for this podcast on soundcloud.com forward slash game dev unchained.